church in 1963, during the heart of the civil rights movement in our nation, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and gave what is one of the most famous speeches in all of history when he proclaimed that he had a dream. In that speech in which Dr. King so passionately and eloquently spoke, he raised a question that was asked by many to the devotees of the civil rights movement, when will you be satisfied? To which Dr. King responded, we can never be satisfied. As long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality, We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied so long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, Dr. King said. We are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. It was a powerful and moving moment. In a powerful and moving speech. And in that quote, what Dr. King ultimately says to those who are questioning, when will you be satisfied? What is enough? The way he ultimately responds is that he will be satisfied when the vision of the prophet Amos comes to pass. When justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream to all people. That then he will be satisfied, but not before then. So let me ask you a question. Are you that unsettled and that unsatisfied by the social inequities that you witness in your life? Or are you relatively unbothered with the clear and apparent inequalities and disparities that exist between people of different races and different classes in our world today. In a world where injustices and disparities remain so prevalent among so many different people, not only in our nation, but but in our own neighborhoods, in this very neighborhood, where we gather to worship every Sunday, would that this passion And this discontentment with the injustices suffered by any person be so alive in our hearts today. In order that we might understand the scope of this problem of injustice, and in order that we might become more motivated by the negative consequences that these issues have on all of our lives, I want to turn our attention today to the prophet Amos. Because what this prophet proclaimed thousands of years ago regarding these very issues remain relevant to our lives today. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to the book of Amos as we consider together the major message 
of this minor prophet. In the book of Amos, uh, we are given what I believe is the answer to uh, the frankly stupid argument that the church has been having with itself for the past hundred years concerning the priority of gospel proclamation over and against the work of social justice. For more than a century, this has been going on. Mainline denominations have increasingly been drifting away from gospel truth and from biblical orthodoxy and have shifted their focus onto doing good and loving people and serving the poor as the primary purpose of the church. In response, the evangelical churches have rightly recognized the mistakes of leaving behind the gospel proclamation and and, and the orthodox faith as is given to us in the scriptures for the work of social justice. But they've taken that recognition of a mistake and turned it into a fear that any kind of engagement with social action must be a sign of gospel drift. So too often the evangelical church has swung the pendulum to the far other extreme, focusing only on proclaiming the good news of Jesus and often turning a blind eye and a hard heart towards the injustices of our world. And what the prophet Amos has to say to both of these camps, which is almost all of the church, at least in America, is that you've totally missed the boat. (laughs) Your actions do not please God, and you need to change your ways. I want you to look with me at how this plays out in the book of Amos. For what we see in the first two chapters of Amos is God speaking a word of judgment against, really, all of His creation. In chapter 1, in the first part of chapter 2, He's speaking a word of judgment against the nations of the world. And then in the beginning of the second half of chapter 2, at verse 4, and then really at verse 6, he begins speaking a word of judgment against his own people, Judah and Israel. And what's fascinating to notice is that what God has against all of these nations is basically the exact same thing. It deals with their mistreatment of other people. He says in verse 3 that he's going to punish Damascus because they threshed Gilead. He says in verse 6 that he's going to punish Gaza because they carried into exile a whole people. He says in verse 9 that he's going to punish Tyre because they delivered a whole people up to Edom. He says in verse 11 that he's going to punish Edom because he pursued his brother with the sword. He says in verse 13 that he's going to punish the Ammonites because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead in order to enlarge their border. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, that he's going to punish Moab because they burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. And then interestingly, as God gets to his own people, uh, Judah and Israel, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, he changes his focus slightly. Uh, from the condemnation of specific acts against other people uh, to a condemnation for rejecting the law of the Lord. Now, as he fleshes that out in in verse 6 and following, it is still because of injustices towards other people, uh, enslaving the righteous and trampling on the poor, etc. 
But with his own people, those violations are sourced and rooted in the breaking of his covenant law, which he had given to them. God points to the transgression of the law that had been given rather than to the act itself. Now, theologically, this is actually very significant. Because what it shows us is that whether the people had the law of God or not, but whether they knew the ways of the Lord or not, they were still responsible to follow his ways. And if they didn't, when they didn't, they were guilty of sin and deserving of judgment. And this is the argument that Paul ultimately makes in Romans chapter 2, when he says that there is no excuse and that everyone is guilty before God, that all who sinned without the law would perish without the law, and that those who sinned under the law would be judged by the law. That's exactly what's happening here in Amos. And Paul's point is that whether you have heard God's law or not, you are still responsible for how you live your life. Because the work of the law is written on human hearts, to which our conscience bears witness. He's saying that we all know right from wrong. That we all have a moral compass in our inner being that God expects for us to follow. It may not be all of God's law, but it's certainly the basics of it. And this ultimately leaves all of humanity without excuse. Both God's people and those who aren't God's people. We are all guilty before Him. In this case, what He's accusing everyone of is their mistreatment of other people. This is summed up powerfully in chapter 1, verse 9. When the Lord says that they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. It's a reminder that we all share a common humanity with one another. And having been created by God, we all are to treat each other as such. With all of the dignity and the respect and the care that an image bearer of God deserves. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yet they had failed to do so. And that both grieves and angers God greatly. In Israel, this played itself out Uh, particularly with the rich abusing and neglecting the poor. Amos calls the wealthy out on this issue in a variety of ways. He said that they used heartless means to become rich, uh, that they had become wealthy by stealing from the oppressed, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, and that some of their treasure had come from violence and robbery, chapter 3, verse 10. He said that they trampled on the needy and brought the poor of the land to an end, chapter 8, verse 4. Amos accuses the Israelites of being ruthless in their business dealings. In chapter 8, verse 5, he shows that they dealt deceitfully with with false balances. They used uneven scales to to cheat people. In chapter 8, verse 6, he says that they sold the poor as slaves for silver. They would do anything for money. He also accuses them of being corrupt in their judicial dealings. In chapter 5, verse 7, we read that they turned justice into bitterness and cast down the righteous. In chapter 5, verse 12, we hear that their judges were corrupt, that they took bribes, and that they turned away the needy. And in the end, they lavished their riches, which they had largely gained through ill-gotten means, all upon themselves. In chapter 3, verse 15, God calls attention to those who had both a summer and a winter house. 
and to others who built houses of ivory and great houses. In chapter 5, verse 11, he points to those who trampled on the poor in order to be able to build houses hewn of stone. In chapter 6, verse 1, he calls a woe on those who were at ease in Zion, who feel secure, who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves on couches, who eat lambs from their flocks, who sing idle songs, and who drink wine from bowls. But do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. These accusations occur again and again and again throughout the book. They are so clear and so consistent throughout Amos' message that a 19th century Bible scholar named Thomas Nelson said that the book of Amos stands as an eloquent witness against those who subordinate human need and dignity in the pursuit of wealth and pleasure. Though God had blessed His people greatly in order that they might be a blessing to others, Amos chapter 3, and though He had warned them clearly in order that they might return to the Lord, Amos chapter 4, still the people of God did not listen. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. They failed to love their neighbor as themselves. And so the Lord was going to bring punishment and judgment upon them. And in response to this, many liberal Christians and non-Christians would say, yes, if God's people are not caring for the poor and working for justice and helping meet real and tangible needs, then they're missing the whole point of their faith, which is to be a people who do good. And who bring blessing to the world. And that's true. But it's not entirely true. (laughs) Because while God does condemn His people for failing to care for their brothers and their sisters who were in need, He also condemns them for another evil that had permeated their midst. That of lifeless and polluted religion. For you see, the two main religious centers in Israel, which Amos references several times throughout this book, were Bethel and Gilgal. These were religious shrines that the people of Israel would flock to, participating in countless rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices that they thought were pleasing to God. But as the Lord, through His prophet, makes clear, they were gravely mistaken. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Lord said to His people, Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to your house of worship and sin. To Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. He said, Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. Make them known for others to see, Amos says. For this is what you love to do. You see, the people thought that by going through their religious rituals, they were worshiping God. But what Amos said is that their worship had become their sinning. By doing their acts of worship, they were actually adding to their sin and their guilt. It wasn't bringing them closer to God. It was moving them further away from Him. And so they thought that they were doing right by their worship, but the Lord had a very different verdict. And in chapter 5, verse 21 to 23, he says that I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. 
Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings from your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. The people were doing acts of worship. They were showing up for church. They were going through all of the motions. But they were doing it for all of the wrong reasons in all of the wrong ways. They were doing it so that they would be seen and admired by others. They were doing it the way that they wanted to do it rather than the way that God wanted them to do it. And they weren't even supposed to worship at Bethel and Gilgal. They were supposed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And that was too far away to be bothered by traveling all the way there. And so they made new places of worship that were more convenient for them. They had basically made their worship all about themselves. They were worshiping a God that they had invented the way that they wanted to worship Him. They weren't worshiping God as He had revealed Himself in the way that He had instructed them to. And so for this also, the Lord was going to bring punishment and judgment upon them. And in response to this, many evangelical and orthodox Christians today would say, yep, if God's people aren't following God's word and obeying God's truth for how they live and how they worship, if you make worship all about yourself and conform God to your ways, rather than making worship about God and conforming yourself to His ways, then they're missing the whole point of their faith, which is to be a people who are, who are submitted to God, worshiping Him and delighting in Him. And that's true, but it's not entirely true. Because as we've already seen, the Lord cares not just about our right worship, but about our right living. And so we can't say that God is only concerned about proclaiming the gospel and then turn a blind eye or a hard heart towards the suffering of our brothers and sisters. At the same time, we cannot say that He is only concerned about social justice and caring for the poor and yet worship Him in any manner that we feel is appropriate. And this ultimately leads us to the fallacy of this whole debate that we are either supposed to rightly love God or rightly love our neighbors. That we are primarily supposed to be about gospel proclamation or that we are primarily supposed to be about social justice. What Amos shows his people is that it cannot be either or. The prophetic voice proclaims that God requires both. And isn't this what Jesus said in our gospel reading today from Matthew chapter 22? When the lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test and asked him what was the greatest commandment in the law... In one of the other accounts of, of this story, it says that, that he asked him, what must he do to be saved? What he's really asking is, what is ultimately required of us by God? What really matters? And in response, Jesus points him to the great commandment. He says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. That this is the great and first commandment. But then he says that the second is just like it. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. The second commandment is like the first. They are both the great commandments. All of the law and the prophets depend upon both of them. It is not an either or. It must be a both and. 
what God requires of us, what we must do to inherit eternal life, is to rightly love Him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what the prophet Amos warns God's people of is that because they have failed to remember the covenant of brotherhood, and because they have failed to worship the Lord as He had instructed them to worship, because they hadn't loved God and hadn't loved their neighbor, that He was going to punish them. He was going to send judgment upon the people. All of the people of the earth, if you remember back to the early chapters of Amos. And so in chapters 7 through 9, Amos has a series of visions that depict how far out of line the people were with their God and how judgments of plague and fire and destruction were going to come among them as a result. It would be as chapter 8 describes, a day of bitter mourning, a time of death and silence, where feasts are turned into mourning and songs into lamentations. A day so cosmic in its nature that the sun would stop shining at noon and the land would go dark during the day. It would be a day that was so painful, it would be like mourning over the loss of an only son. Amos tells us that this is what we all deserve for our neglect of God and our mistreatment of one another. And it is this promise of our judgment that ultimately leads us to the hope of our salvation. And it may seem odd to say that judgment leads to salvation, but isn't that exactly what happens? I mean, isn't that ultimately what the good news of the gospel is? That there is judgment for sin, and that God pours out His wrath upon sin to deal with it once and for all but that His wrath doesn't come upon us. Instead, He bears it in Himself in the death of His Son. And isn't Amos' prophecy exactly how that happened to Christ upon the cross? When we read Matthew chapter 27, that as Jesus was being crucified, that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all of the land, The sun went down at noon and darkened the earth in broad daylight. That's Amos chapter 8, verse 9. We read in Luke chapter 23 that in the midst of their Passover celebration, the people who witnessed Jesus' death went home beating their breasts. Their feasts had been turned into mourning. Their songs into lamentations. That's Amos chapter 8, verse 10. Amos had predicted that this day would be so terrible that it would be like mourning for the loss of an only son. And yet it was not we who mourned the loss of a son, but God Himself. In His death upon the cross, Jesus bore all of the punishment and judgment that Amos had predicted in our place. He took the plague of sin upon Himself. He faced the fires of hell so that we would not have to. His body was destroyed so that we would not be. Church, this is the good news of the gospel. And it is proclaimed in advance from the lips of almost every prophet that we've heard from and that we will hear from. We are guilty of sin and deserving of judgment. But God in His grace takes our judgment upon Himself. 
He deals with our guilt and he offers us his forgiveness. In his life and in his death, Jesus did what we were never able to do. He loved God with all of himself. And he loved us as himself. He followed God's ways, even when he didn't want to. Ultimately submitting in the garden, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And he loved his neighbors as himself. In fact, he loved his neighbors more than he loved himself. Jesus didn't protect his own life in order that he might protect ours. He loved us more than he loved himself. And in the place of judgment and death that we deserve, he gives to us a freedom and forgiveness and a life that we could never have without him. And all that we need to do to receive this, Amos says, is to seek the Lord and live. To return to him and find the life that he offers. The book of Amos ends with a glimpse of that promised life. At the end of chapter 9, after the punishments and judgments have been dealt with, the Lord declares that he will restore the fortunes of his people. They will rebuild ruined cities, replant ruined fields, and never be uprooted again. It's an image of complete and unending abundance and satisfaction and fulfillment that will come from the hand of the Lord. And it is available to all. Not just for God's people, but for the remnant of all of the nations who are to face God's judgment. From all who will call on God's name and be called by God's name. Church, this is what we want for our lives. This is what we want for all lives. The flourishing that God intended for all of those that he created. And a huge part of the way that we and others will experience this flourishing in our world is if we will heed the message of the prophet Amos. In his day, Dr. King would not be satisfied until the vision of Amos came to pass. Until justice rolled down like the waters. And righteousness, right living, right relationship flowed like a mighty, ever-flowing stream to all people. May we be unsatisfied until that happens also. Church, let us love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and with all of our minds and with all of our strength. And let us love our neighbors as ourselves for God's glory and for everyone's good. Amen.